Good morning. You may be seated. It's really good to see so many of you here. I was a little startled when I got out this morning and saw all the extra bonus snow. Um, I'm uh, Susan Radicke. I'm equipping pastor here at Emmanuel Anglican. Um, and in case you missed the very opening of the service, um, Father Aaron Damiani is leading a retreat in Minnesota. So he is not in balmy Florida or he's not deserted us for the south. Um, he's laboring for the Lord um, at a, a, another uh, church in our parish. Well, I don't know about you, but I have really been enjoying and benefiting from our current sermon series, Waking Up, Becoming Fully Human. We've been moving through the first chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the early life of Jesus, and from here on out, this series will focus on um, the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably the most famous sermon in history, and is so familiar that some of the language here has become cliche, turning the other cheek, going the second mile. Um, those phrases come from today's text. Well, this familiarity makes it easy to forget how difficult Jesus's sermon is. Um, the teachings in his sermon are beautiful, um, but they can be disturbing as well. And that's why as I was preparing for this sermon, I found myself more and more grateful for this larger context that we've been looking at. Um, it's important to understand these teachings, not only in the larger context of Jesus's sermon, um, but within the context of all we witnessed in the Gospel of Matthew thus far, and especially how Jesus's relationship to his father informed every aspect of his life, his identity, his calling, his whole way of being. But in order to support our understanding of today's text, we're going to zoom back even a little further than the Gospels. Jesus takes the law of Moses as the jumping off point for this part of his sermon, and we're going to do the same thing. The law of Moses was a gift to his people. This was a precious gift that was practical and beautiful and relational. At a practical level, these holy laws served as guardrails for society, giving human communities guidance and support in knowing how to live together. Basic laws like thou shalt not murder set clear boundaries around what would be tolerated in the community. Laws like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth might sound brutal to us, but their intention and effect serve justice, offering wronged and wounded people um, the individual some justice for the wrongs done them, and also protecting the community by forestalling escalating blood feuds. These laws were meant as a blessing, bringing a measure of order and justice and peace wherever they were followed. But that's not where the gift of the law ended, though. That was just the beginning. The law, together with the prophets, foreshadowed something even greater and more wonderful than the law. They captured something holy and just about the character of God, preparing the imagination of the people to recognize the Messiah when he came. And even that's not all. Do you remember that the Mosaic law, the law given to Moses, formed part of the covenant between God and his beloved chosen people? I know words like the law seem to be about the least personal, least intimate aspect of our relationship to God. But the law of the Lord was intended to bind the life of the people 
together with the life of the Father in a sacred covenantal bond. Sometime between the giving of the law and the coming of Christ, though, the chosen people had fallen into the habit of using God's precious three-dimensional law primarily as a tool for managing behavior and for calculating the degree of one's righteousness. Now, this is an incredibly easy thing to do, not just for the Pharisees of Jesus' day, but for you and I also. It's really easy to fall into the habit of using the law for keeping score or as a behavioral management tool. So hard to experience righteousness as something that flows from our relationship with the Father. Weird things happen when we make the law more about behavior management than about intimacy with the Father. Take, for example, what passes sometimes for reconciliation in a household I know. <laughs> when a wrong has been done, the offender is encouraged to make specific confession and to express contrition. And the offended party is encouraged to graciously extend forgiveness. When both parties are expressing the heart of the Father in this modeled exchange, reconciliation ensues and peace is restored. <laughs> this is the pattern set forth, a model intended to reveal the heart of the Father that exists behind the model. But guess what happens when everyone drills down on the model itself and focuses on it as a legal transaction? Mom, I said I was sorry, but he's not forgiving me. Well, she said she was sorry, but she didn't say what she was sorry for, so it didn't count. Fine, sorry I was rude. I forgive you. It is entirely possible to keep the letter of the law while missing and grieving the heart of the Father. This dynamic is one thing in developing children. By definition, children are immature. Becoming fully human is a process of maturing in Christ. It's useful along the way to have a model, a picture of how forgiveness works, a picture of the Father's heart for us. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus is about to provide for us in his sermon. Not new laws, but illustrations of the Father's heart. But we can never mature in Christ until we are willing to turn our energy away from sheer behavior management and turn toward cultivating the character of the Father in our lives. The righteousness of sin management was the righteousness of the Pharisees, and Jesus tells us right off in this passage that he could not be less interested in this kind of righteousness. In verses 17 through 20, Jesus lays out a challenge for us. Our righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees if we want to join him in the Father's kingdom. If the idea of competing for the title of most righteous with the Pharisees makes you feel a little shifty and uncomfortable, I think that's the right place to start. Whether you have a positive view of the Pharisees as top-notch law keepers, as the people of Jesus' day most likely did, or if you hear Pharisee and think self-righteous hypocrite, either way, this kind of sounds like Jesus just wants us to do what the Pharisees are doing, but crank up the holiness factor a few notches. Well, in verses 21 through 44, 
Jesus is going to walk us through a set of brief, six brief illustrations or examples of what he's talking about. And we'll see pretty quickly, he blows that theory away. Of these six illustrations, we're looking just at three of them today. Three short passages that focus on anger, contempt, retaliation, and enmity. We're going to dip into these illustrations with an eye toward how they're related to contemporary temptations that we face now, and also pay attention to how Jesus means to use these illustrations. Thankfully, at the end of our text, in verses 43 through 48, Jesus reveals the key to this challenge. That is where he lays out the surpassingly good news of the gospel and how it relates to his extraordinary challenge. So we're going to walk forward through the text text, from the challenge, which he's already given us, to have our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees. We're going to walk through the examples um, that Jesus gives from our sort of natural human default perspective. We'll move through those, and then we'll arrive at what I believe is the key to this section of his text, Um, and to see what it means to stop trying to improve our sin management skills and start embodying the character of the Father. Then we're going to go back and look at those examples again, this time with that key in our hand. Ready? So beginning in verses 21 to 23, Jesus has some uncomfortable things to say about anger and contempt. He recalls the Old Testament boundary around anger. Don't kill the person you're angry with. And then he goes on to explain that it's not just murder that's off limits for the people of the kingdom. Scorn and casual expressions of contempt are not permissible either. We're generally a nice congenial bunch here at Emmanuel Anglican. I don't imagine that too many of us are actually going around spitting scornful epithets in people's faces. But it's also true that we have some passionately held beliefs about justice, about care for the poor, equal treatment for women and minorities, compassion for the oppressed, marginalized, and it's possible that we occasionally stray into genuinely scornful attitudes toward those who threaten those values. It is a distressing world out there. Lots of bad stuff happening, lots of genuinely contemptible behavior. There are a lot of good reasons to be angry. But the issue for Jesus seems to be when our anger tips over into contempt, which is the feeling that that other person is deserving of our scorn. This sense of other is important here. When we experience contempt or scorn for another person, that feeling involves not just judgment or evaluation, but a real sense of personal superiority. They do that. I do not, by implication. Are there sectors of our society that you experience as repugnant based on their beliefs or their actions or their voting records? Are there people, when you read about them, you can feel your blood pressure raise? Have you ever referred to someone as an idiot, a nut job, a libtard, a waste of space? waste of skin? Have you ever openly mocked members of the opposing political party or sniffed at religious perspectives that you find ridiculous? 
If so, and I count myself guilty here too, Jesus is talking to us about this. Note carefully, Jesus doesn't say it's wrong to be angry. What he says is that we'll be judged in our anger. He doesn't say we're not allowed to evaluate other people's beliefs or behaviors. Jesus himself did these things. Jesus called out people as fools, and he wasn't in danger of hellfire. Then again, he was issuing serious rebukes, not expressing contempt or disdain. Giving warnings and rebukes are not off limits for us. We can and should stand up and speak up for the truth. We can vote and demonstrate for leaders and causes we believe in. We can hold someone fully accountable for criminal actions or work for their political defeat without experiencing or expressing scorn. I certainly hope we are pouring out our lives for fellow human beings who are weaker than we are. But when we use dismissive labels, when we treat other human beings with contempt, no matter how richly they may deserve it in some sense, we are trespassing against the generous, humble love of God, and according to Jesus himself, putting ourselves in danger of hellfire. What sort of reaction do you notice in yourselves when you hear this message from Jesus? My guess is that most of us will have one of a couple reactions or slide between the two of them, depending on the circumstances, and both of them are going to miss the mark a little bit. Maybe we'll take a deep breath and adopt this admonition as a new prohibition. We'll decide to suck it up and start policing our thoughts and policing our language more strictly. We'll respond to this call as a, we'll respond to this teaching as a call to manage ourselves more closely. Or we may find ourselves pushing back against it and argue that there must be some loopholes for this. Surely we're allowed to feel and express disdain for certain types of sinners, maybe at least uh, racists or sexists. Maybe Jesus doesn't understand that unless I express my outrage in the form of contempt, the bad people are going to get away with doing the bad things. It's a little ironic, actually. Not only do we misuse God's law as a tool for behavior management, we also try to use anger as a tool for behavior management, don't we? We humans are social animals. If people don't conform willingly to our way of thinking and being, we revert very quickly to tactics of scolding and shaming. We might do this at our household level. We might do this at a public level. This is exactly why outrage is such a hot commodity. Everybody wants your outrage. The religious cultural warriors want your outrage. The politicians want your outrage. The media and their corporate sponsors love it when you click on their rage-inducing headlines. This is the wisdom of the rulers of this age as opposed to the wisdom of God as referred to in Corinthians. Pay attention to who is calling for your outrage and who they want you to view as your enemy. Attempts to control our enemies through angry, shaming, contemptuous expressions is off-limits for followers of Jesus. James 1.20 puts it really clearly. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Well, this is a rough teaching, and it's about to get rougher, just in a little different direction here. 
um, looking at verses 38 through 42. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, then let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. From our purely human default perspective, these models for behavior seem wildly impractical. Taken literally, if we take them as new laws, these instructions seem like a recipe for personal and social disaster. Inviting someone to slap you twice, doubling the set settlement whenever someone sues you, never saying no. I genuinely get stressed out when I imagine a person who behaves like this in every situation. Where is this person's sense of volition and agency, much less their sense of self? Are they masochistic or just codependent? And apart from these personal issues, what does it mean do not resist a person who's evil? Isn't it a good thing to stop an evil person? Don't we need to resist evil people in the interests of our neighbors, if not ourselves? So many questions bubble up, so many legitimate concerns. But if they are bubbling up from a place of anxiety, these may short circuit our ability to hear what Jesus is really saying. These are mature teachings, and you and I are not yet fully mature. And as we heard in the, the New Testament reading today, it is to the mature mind that wisdom is spoken. In our natural selves, we cannot accept the things of God. They are folly to us. But the Spirit wants to give us the mind of Christ. If you are experiencing these words of Jesus as if they were laws, impossibly heavy and unreasonable, similar to the laws of the Pharisees who burdened their people with heavy burdens and would not lift a finger to help carry them, I want you to sit with that feeling for a minute. Feel the weight of that kind of burden. Face into the anxiety that it brings up. Feel the impossibility and hopelessness of both trying to manage yourself into holiness and refrain from trying to manage other people into holiness. And now, take a deep breath and remember what you know of Jesus. Friend of sinners, hope of the hopeless, our Redeemer. Hear his words, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, come to me, I will give you rest. Our own broken experience of the world and the demons of Satan will collude together in tempting us to mishear and misunderstand these words of Jesus as just another set of pharisaical laws designed to crush us. But the gospel is good news, brothers and sisters. It is good news to know that we can never manage our neighbors into right thinking and right behavior just by registering our disapproval of them. It is good news to know we can't manage ourselves into the kingdom of heaven. 
There's only one way into the kingdom of God, and the name of that way is Jesus. We are here now at the key that unlocks his sermon. Jesus is going to tell us the way into the kingdom now, and that's just the beginning. Soon, through his ministry, his death, his resurrection, he will actually lead the way into the kingdom. He comes with us. So picking up midway through verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What Jesus asks of us is simply to be who we are in Christ. No more and no less. Who are we? We are sons and daughters of the Most High God, And through Jesus Christ, we are meant to participate in his nature. What is the nature of Jesus Christ? In the book of Hebrews, we learn that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of the Father and the exact imprint of his nature. What is the nature of God? The nature of God is to love his enemies with wisdom, with generosity, with humility. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Because he is our father, he is our model and the source of our lives. While we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his beloved son. That is how God treats his enemies. He overcame evil with good and went to the cross for them. If we are his children, we participate in his nature. We become heirs and we inherit not only his salvation, but we become the recipients of an endless flow of love that expresses itself through us in humility and generosity, even to our enemies. That is the righteousness that Jesus calls us to, not the righteousness of managing sin, but the righteousness of simply stewarding this great gift of love that the Father has poured on us. What happens when our gaze shifts from trying to manage all the awful stuff we find both inside ourselves and out there in the world and instead view ourselves as simply being responsible to steward the gift of love that we are constantly receiving from the Father? Let's look at Christ's illustrations again, noting particularly two specific facets of his love that seem prominent here, humility and generosity. Where we are tempted to show contempt, God asks us to display his humility. Where we are tempted to hang on to our personal rights, God asks us to display his generosity. Take the illustrations in verses 20 and 24, and then in 25 and 26, in both examples, you're asked to imagine yourself as a supplicant of sorts. 
In one scene, you're bringing a gift to God's altar. In the other, you're on your way to see the judge. In both cases, you are made aware that you are accountable to someone greater than yourself. And in both cases, Jesus is warmly encouraging us to take swift action, to reconcile ourselves with anyone that we're at odds with. Whatever anyone has said or done to arouse our anger and contempt, however petty or well-grounded our animosity toward them, Jesus calls us to a humble recognition of the fact that before Judge Jesus, the difference in moral status between me and every other human being on the planet is negligible, almost like it's not there. Secondly, where we are tempted to hang on to our personal rights, God asks us to display his generosity. Looking at verses 38 through 42, these examples, I do want to point out first that none of these examples involve accepting abuse or staying with an abuser. Slapping someone's face is assault, but the context in Jesus' day is that of a public insult, not physical attack. And we need to interact with this primarily as an insult. It was actually considered a grave enough insult in that day that you would have the right to sue the person who slapped you for something similar to defamation of character. So the illustration is that of a person who forgoes his right to avenge an insult. This section is often labeled um, retaliation in our Bibles. It's about refraining from retaliation. The next example is that of someone being sued for his tunic. Note that we don't know if this lawsuit is just or unjust, but we do know that for anyone, anywhere, if you're being taken to court, it is because one or both of you were not willing to work it out another way. Jesus seems to be encouraging us to consider taking a financial hit. Not only that, but adding to the value of what's being demanded of you. We think of uh, Paul's talking about lawsuits. Um, would you not rather uh, be deprived of what's due to you for the sake of the kingdom? And where the text refers to being forced to march a mile, it's talking about the legal limit that a Roman soldier could force someone to carry their equipment um, for him. So you could make an argument that the law is not a terribly just one. I doubt the Jews got to vote on this law. Um, but it definitely was providing a boundary for what could be asked of you legally. And again, Jesus is showing us the possibility of just blowing right past what is due you and displaying just gratuitous generosity. This is the same principle with giving and loaning to all who beg or borrow. These are illustrations that point us away from the scarcity mindset that we're born into and point us toward a divine spirit of lavish generosity. What's involved here? What differentiates a mature, wise, humble, lavishly generous person from a weak and foolish doormat? Our ultimate example, of course, is Jesus. Jesus literally gave his back to those who strike and his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. He did not hide his face from disgrace and spitting. His garments were taken from him. He was forced to march with his own cross on his back. And the world's assessment of him at that moment was as a poor, hapless, weak victim. 
But what did Jesus say about himself? In John 10, he says, I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, voluntarily. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. The immature lover fears losing himself or herself through acts of humility and generosity. We think our dignity can be stolen from us by someone's unkind words. We fear being taken advantage of and left with nothing. We're afraid that unless we stop evil, it will go unchecked forever. The mature lover knows this is not true. When our lives are submitted to the Father we love, not in a spirit of fear or resignation or scorekeeping, but voluntarily from a position of faith, confidence, and the joy that flows out of the love we have received, there is real power and real freedom. We can come, we can grow, we can mature to see these illustrations as genuinely exciting possibilities for the woman or man who has everything in Christ. If you are secure in your identity as God's beloved daughter or son, you won't be crushed for long by mere mortal's unfavorable opinion. You have self-worth to spare. If your father cares for you like he does the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, why not give your cloak away when you're sued for your tunic? If you are conscripted into forced labor, but you genuinely know that you are merely a steward of the time and the energy that God has given to you, it is entirely reasonable that God may prompt you to make a donation. The more deeply grounded we are in the reality that we have access to all the spiritual riches of heaven through Christ Jesus, the more we have the mind of Christ, the more natural and the more effortless divine generosity become. We are free to seriously consider every opportunity we're given for some to, that we're asked for. No request is too large to entertain. We have only to ask, what does my father want me to do in this situation? And it will be different in different situations. This is, these examples are not prescriptions for every situation. They're designed to expand our understanding of what it means to live out of the character of the father. And this is a big ask, of course. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I often wonder how Jesus looked when he was delivering these words to people. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? What did his face look like? What was his voice like? How do you tell someone to be perfect, whole, complete? Be just like the Father. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. This is a mature message for a mature people, a complete people. And none of us will embody this perfection until the day we see Jesus face to face. On that day, we will be perfect. But for now, be encouraged. If this sermon by Jesus excites you, if you can see a glimmer of what he means by it, and you're captivated by the beautiful possibilities there, 
go ahead and start experimenting. Try out some of these lavish acts of humility and generosity. Go for the 20th time to that, to be reconciled to that offensive family member or coworker, or at least start praying for them. If this sermon leaves you feeling cold and suspicious, maybe even fearful, that's okay too. My very favorite description of discipleship comes from the title of a book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. We start where we are. And if these illustrations seem genuinely threatening to you, if you are fearful that you or others will be damaged if you try to practice these things right now, pay attention to that. Don't jump in and start exposing yourself to insult or giving to someone who asks of you if you're not ready to. That's starting too far ahead. And there are no shortcuts to maturity. Until you know that your life has inherent dignity and value, you're not able to voluntarily lay it down in sacrifice. And there's no virtue in saying yes when you, until you are capable of saying no when you need to. You might need to practice saying no before you can say yes in this manner. In some cases, you might need to practice acknowledging and feeling anger before you learn to lay that down. If that describes you, the best place to start is with increasing your capacity to receive love from the Father. Um, I warmly encourage you to ask a pastor or leader or trusted Christian friend for counsel if you sense you need to grow in this area. I'm going to close just with a simple blessing and encouragement from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.